Well, good evening, everyone. I'm Michelle Easton, president of the Claire Booth Luce Center for Conservative Women. And I want to welcome you all to our special Open Borders event tonight with Michelle Malkin. Michelle Malkin is a superb conservative leader and a role model for young women. That's why we admire her so much at Claire Booth Luce Center for Conservative Women, where our mission is to prepare young women for effective leadership and to promote leading conservative women who are role models for the young women we prepare. At the Center for Conservative Women, we work to advance America's women by promoting and preserving conservative principles. Michelle is an incredible writer and researcher with six best-selling books. She's a powerful TV and radio commentator, an original thinker, and a wonderful mother and wife. And she has a heart for young women, helping them to be all they can be. There's a lot more about Michelle's outstanding career and involvement with the center outlined in the program that we passed out. But we're especially proud that we gave her our Woman of the Year Award and that she is one of our most requested campus speakers. She's got a speech coming up for us in just a few days. Michelle, I read your book. This is a great book. It is so filled with important information that I've never seen gathered together before. And it shows that when you follow the money, as the book does, you find the truth. She writes a fantastic appraisal of the overwhelming but not hopeless fight to reclaim our borders and our country. And Michelle lays out beautifully how America has a history of embracing people from around the world, fleeing persecution and war. After making a very persuasive case in the book, she even tells you what you can do about it. We're so honored to have you with us, Michelle, the day after your excellent book was published. And I want to thank you for all you do to make our country great. Please join me in welcoming Michelle Malkin. Thank you. Um, thanks for coming, and I really appreciate it. Um, it is a, a very significant day to be addressing you about the most important existential policy question um, in front of this country on the 18th anniversary of the September 11th terrorist attacks. Who gets into the country? How do we decide what numbers, what factors go into making these decisions? And if we discover that people are here who shouldn't be here, what steps need to be taken to remove those people from the country? In 2002, on the first year anniversary of the September 11th terrorist attacks, I published my first book with Regnery. And this is really a homecoming, this seventh book of mine, to come full circle, um, to talk not only about the systemic failures to enforce our immigration laws, uh, and to do so in a positively discriminating way, to be picky and choosy and unapologetic about it, um, but then now with Open Borders Inc., who's, who's funding the destruction of America, to um, trace all of the dots, to collect them and connect them um, so that people may understand what larger global forces are at work in usurping the decisions that should really be ours about who gets in, who stays, 
and who should leave. Um, I, I want to dedicate my remarks tonight to a friend of, of many of yours and mine, and certainly a friend of the Claire Booth uh, Luce Institute, Barbara Olson, who had been scheduled to speak to the Conservative Women's Network and who was a regnery author, a huge role model of mine. And because this is an institution that honors and, and promotes conservative women, um, I hope that new generations of conservative women on college campuses and that are coming into their own epiphanies about um, the, the rightness of our principles and values um, will learn more about this extraordinary woman and her legacy. She was certainly a role model of mine and always a happy warrior with a brilliant smile that I will never forget. And I saw a friend of ours uh, last night when I was at Fox in the DC Bureau who was also a good friend of hers, Victoria Tensing, who helped publicize Hell to Pay at the time. And um, as, as, uh, as removed as we are from September 11th, 2001, it is still so very raw for us. I lived here in the DC swamp at the time. My husband um, worked frequently at the Pentagon and was supposed to be at the Pentagon on the day of the attacks. Instead, he was um, in Maryland in a high-rise building where from the rooftop he could see some of the smoke billowing from the Pentagon crash. Um, we had lots of friends of friends um, who had lost loved ones who were firefighters and police officers who worked in the financial offices of the World Trade Center. And that's what spurred me to write my first book. I'd never done that before, and I don't know where I got the audacity to think I could do such a thing, let alone approach such an august house as, as Regnery um, to publish it. And they did, and they believed in me, um, and I'm forever grateful for both Regnery and Claire Booth Luce um, for helping me uh, to give voice to so many others who are, are voiceless. Um, Open Borders, Inc. is divided into two sections. The first one, all enemies foreign, and the second half, all enemies domestic. And of course, this is borrowed from the language of the oath of citizenship, which both of my parents took uh, when they became citizens after coming here in 1970 legally uh, from the Philippines. And I've always said, from the time I started covering these issues more than a quarter century as an editorial writer and columnist for metropolitan newspapers in Los Angeles and Seattle, uh, that I was ingrained in this idea that citizenship was not an entitlement, not a guarantee, but a privilege, and a privilege that should be celebrated uh, rather than apologized for. So I've exercised the First Amendment as a living for more than 25 years, um, trying to disseminate those ideas and educate people about why we are supposed to have an orderly immigration system in the first place. The lost lesson of 9-11 um, is, is really that it was all of the lapses of immigration enforcement that colluded to provide this fertile ground for the hijackers in the first place. And we need to tirelessly remind people that every single one of those 19 walked through the front door, not illegally through the southern border. We, we gave them the free golden ticket into the country. We failed to enforce uh, the rules uh, regarding 
the overstaying of visas. And the 9-11 Commission's key conclusion that we should build a uh, fully functional biometric entry exit system so that we could locate visa overstayers so that we could do something about it was never implemented. 18 years later, there are nearly 700,000 <laughs> visa overstayers and nobody has done anything about it. The primary lesson that it, all it takes is a teeny tiny minority of evildoers and, and malefactors blending in among a larger population of upwards of 30 million illegal aliens has been completely ignored. And so for all of the never forget admonitions, the practical fact is that we've hit the snooze button and we still operate in, in large ways um, under a, a cloud of amnesia about what happened 18 years ago today. So many informed consumers of conservative news are um, very familiar with the role that George Soros has played in funding the open borders infrastructure. And probably the most shocking revelation to me as I did my research was how much of the funding comes from you and me, <laughs> from taxpayers, uh, that the $18 billion that Soros has earmarked uh, to um, achieve his agenda is pretty much matched, um, if not overshadowed, by the billions that are being siphoned um, from tax coffers uh, to fund many of those tax-exempt nonprofit organizations. One of the things that I think has been really important throughout my career is to give credit to those unsung investigative reporters and independent bloggers who have been doing this work, who have been doing the job that the mainstream open borders media won't do. And in the acknowledgments of my, of my book um, and in footnote after footnote, I give credit to those people. These are individuals that will never win Pulitzer Prizes, but have far surpassed um, all of these media elites you know, these sort of Sorbonne credentialed journalists um, who have such a sense of condescension about people who aren't members of the club. And I've always held that sort of strange position as well because people will laugh um, if I'm in some uh, mainstream or dinosaur network salon and call myself a journalist. And yet it's okay to be Jose Antonio Vargas, a Soros underwritten proud, out-of-the-closet, illegal alien journalist who has admitted that he stole somebody's identity, that he used a fake driver's license, that he lied multiple times uh, to his mainstream media bosses, uh, and then bemoans being in the shadows while he's on the lecture circuit for his latest book or movie project. But he's a journalist, and I'm not. It's okay to identify as horror Hey, Ramos does, who will be a moderator tomorrow, a moderator. Can we put an IMM in front of that? Immoderator um, at the Democrat de uh, presidential debate in Houston. 
He calls himself an activist journalist. That's okay. It's okay for Amy Goodman to be an activist journalist. Well, now I'm going around and um, holding a, a hashtag stand with ICE sign uh, at, at rallies because I was tired in my adopted home state of Colorado of watching many of the groups whose uh, money trail I document in Open Borders Inc. out there actively intimidating and harassing um, ICE agents who are doing their duty, men and women in uniform from all sorts of, of backgrounds, races, ethnicities, being demonized essentially as SS guards. And every day it's Republicans and immigration enforcement patriots and supporters of Trump who are accused of inciting violence, while these people have painted a literal target on the backs of men and women in uniform, be they ICE agents or uh, Border Patrol or other employees of the Department of, of Homeland Security. So I'm an activist journalist. I fully embrace that. Um, but uh, instead, I, um, you know, how I'm described in mainstream news articles um, is white supremacist conspiracy theorist. Um, fine, you can call me whatever you want. Um, but I think that the, the facts and the numbers and the dollars that I track in Open Borders, nearly 500 pages, um, fully cited with multiple appendices, speaks for itself. Um, when I talk about the activist part of, of the role that I've played uh, in conservative media, whether it was old media as an ink-stained wretch or new media as a blogger and internet entrepreneur, the reason why I've engaged in that is not that I love it. <laughs> I am by nature an introvert, uh, and uh, you know I, I sort of followed my own advice to my kids of, of faking it till you make it, fake it till you make it, because this is, is, is not my, my natural bent to do this kind of thing. I'm a hellraiser, but you know, I prefer to do it within my four walls of my house. Um, but, but I felt compelled. And I think that one of the common experiences that I have with a lot of, of the young women that I speak to at uh, Claire Booth Loose events is that my formative years were really in a college campus where the values and principles that my parents taught me were put to the test, okay? They were not behind me anymore. Um, I had to see whether I, I truly believed in those same principles and whether I was going to do anything about it. Um, and as many of you know, because my whole life is an open book and transparent, um, I attended Oberlin College, the berserkly of the Midwest, the home of the whole entire safe space concept. Um, and also, I think one of the, the really early testing grounds of uh, this idea of radical identity politics. Well, up until I went away to college, I really only had a few identities, and one of them was something my parents had always insisted that I embrace, and that is the identity of unhyphenated American. Well, of course, this is, was an affront to the radical leftists, most of them much more pale than I, uh, reminding me that because I was the color I was, that I should think a certain way. And that same mentality has metastasized and infused the immigration debate. Well, your parents are from a foreign country. 
you should, of course, embrace the open borders, let them all in, um, welcome all strangers at all costs mentality. It makes absolutely zero sense to somebody whose allegiance and whose sense of gratitude stems from having an orderly immigration system that, at least in my parents' case, rewarded them because they had um, to prove that they had a special set of skills, uh, a fealty to Western values, proficiency in English, you know, that little thing to ask of people who come to the country. Um, and, and so, you know, it, it, it's actually quite illogical to accuse me of, of, of being some sort of traitor when, when in fact, um, what I'm doing is try to, trying to perpetuate the same kind of orderly system um, for future generations. Um, so I said that the, this book was somewhat of a, of a homecoming, but it, for me also, it's, um, I'm not gonna say a swan song, but I think it, it is, um, it's a natural progression from where I started in, in my career. And as I mentioned, having done early reporting um, in, the, in the early warning system of Southern California, it was quite clear where we were going to end up in the place that we are. But I would have never predicted that Donald Trump would have embraced this exact agenda and then successfully defeated the entire Clinton machine, along with Hollywood, along with the media, um, along with every hijacked public institution, and with this entire open borders infrastructure in place. I could have never predicted it. There's a lot of people in the Beltway that lie and said they knew it was gonna happen all along. <laughs> They're lying, <laughs> fact-checked, <laughs> false. Um, and what a delight that was. And so that still motivates me now more than ever. You know, I felt, well, you know, I'm sort of like in the twilight of stage two of my life and career, but this is fun. <laughs> I mean, you know, I think inside the Beltway bubble, it, it looks very dire, but um, especially being able to breathe the, the fine, fresh air of the Rockies and, and, and Colorado, I'm much more optimistic than I thought I would be. Uh, the end of the book, like the end of Invasion, um, includes concrete steps that people can take so that they don't feel completely hopeless and helpless um, at the end of 500 pages, knowing how daunting uh, all of these forces are, how much money is being spent, um, what we're really up against, knowing that, um, that, that, that it is a global network. Um, and, but I also always feel that if you start out small, then, then you feel like you can actually achieve real change, you know, e even in your own home. That if you can take some slightly inconvenient steps of um, withholding funding from these organizations, um, at least knowing what they're doing, and I understand, especially in an age when we've got Silicon Valley so penetrating our daily lives, how hard it is to wean yourself off of Google. <laughs> I'm sure that, the, that there are many in this room who remember that their original corporate motto was, don't be evil. <laughs> uh, and, you know, they, they hook you, they, they addict you uh, to all of their products. It is hard to get off Gmail, but there are options. There all are, are alternatives. Um, same thing with uh, Amazon and, and Facebook and, 
you know, once you sort of go on a, a little mini hunger strike, you know, a little strike on those things, you realize it can get easier. Um, and we've seen examples of this where some of these corporate social justice uh, warriors have just pushed it too far and then it becomes really easy. Nike, <laughs> Gillette, have you seen their stock price lists lately? Um, and these things can make a difference. Um, some of them are harder, and I think one of the most shocking chapters that I completed was the chapter on the Vatican, the Catholic Church, and the amnesty uh, profiteers. I am a Catholic myself, and I knew that bad things were going on. I did not know how bad they were. Um, I did not know that there was an entire proliferation of these uh, Catholic groups that were accepting government funds. In fact, um, majority of, of the funds in many of their cases um, coming from taxpayers. The history of the founding of the Catholic Campaign for Human Development, uh, the Conference of Bishops itself, um, all of these shelters uh, that are operated from Central America all the way up the spine of, of Mexico and, and then into the interior of the country. And I watched a viral video on Twitter of a loyal um, Catholic churchgoer who was outraged at the cover-ups on the pedophile scandal set afire um, a collection envelope. And I would think that knowing what you know after you read the book about the Pope and the Vatican and the Catholic Church's um, vast role in undermining our borders is a far greater reason to set the collection plate on fire too, along with the envelopes. Uh, and I, I do know that it's incredibly difficult even now uh, to speak out about such things. Um, but there do, does need to be, I think, a grassroots organic internal revolt um, against the Catholic Church for these kind of subversive and, and seditious activities. And not to single out the Catholic Church, because of course there are many other religious nonprofits and, uh, who are involved in the refugee resettlement racket, for example. And I name all of those and also give credit to many of the researchers at the Center for Immigration Studies, Ann Corcoran, who is a, a, a hero of mine, who runs a blog that uh, discloses a lot of this information that the mainstream media won't, um, and many other conservative websites um, that I've uh, given due credit to for their work. If anything, um, what I try to do is steer readers in the direction uh, of the work that so many of these other great journalists are, are doing. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of times, uh, they are getting squelched, um, these voices are. And I've talked about Ann Corcoran's blog, which was hosted on the WordPress platform, um, just being killed out of the blue uh, a couple of weeks before I finalized the, the manuscript of the book. Uh, it's alarming, and that is why there's an entire chapter in the book as well um, on the war on free speech um, that's being waged by Silicon Valley. And we do have a lot of awareness of that uh, in the conservative movement now. But what I'm trying to do uh, with the book is make clear the intersection of the war on our borders, the war on our sovereignty, and the war on free speech. Because in large part, the tactics that are being used against Prager University and um, you know, very effective people on YouTube and the deplatformings that you're seeing now 
Um, those methods really were born and perfected and used against immigration enforcement patriots. And I talk about how in, in 2006 and 2007, um, I found myself in one of these videos that was produced by uh, a subsidiary of the Southern Poverty Law Center, uh, essentially. And it was because I had talked about the um, academic movement um, around Asatlan and Reconquista. I didn't realize that those were trigger words that I was not supposed to use. Invasion was on that list. Oops, <laughs> we forgot about that. Um, and you weren't supposed to about, talk about crime or demographics. And so that, uh, that guidebook, that, that list of, of code words, um, really morphed into, of course, a, a larger um, hidden recipe book that's now being used in algorithms to target even ordinary people, not just you know high-profile authors or pundits or talk radio hosts or or politicians. And these mass purgings that we're seeing um, at Facebook and and YouTube really are aimed at squelching free speech, uh, like this book. I mean, I wondered. Well, you know. Are we going to get it on Amazon? <laughs> Are we going to be able to talk about it? And it's um, it's not something that I ever thought I'd, I'd have to worry about. Um, and so I, I dedicated the book to three groups of people. The first was ICE agents, um, Border Patrol agents, and the people at, who work at DHS. The second group of people I dedicated the book to were angel moms and dads. The families of victims of illegal alien crime uh, that are sneered at by open borders media. And the third group of people were my friends and allies who have been relegated to what I call the valley of the band. Um, and to know that this is a, a concerted, organized, well-orchestrated effort by the SPLC and Silicon Valley and many other groups that have all sorts of anodyne names, um, I think should convince and persuade other ordinary Americans to raise their own voices. And I know that Cory Booker is all in all his, you know, I am Spartacus thing. Well, no, no, we, we are Spartacus. And, uh, you know, as long as each of us is able to have access to a Twitter account or a Facebook account, um, we can share that information and um, and provide our, our own means of, of uh, you know, creating, whether it's through those platforms or alternate ones, I don't know. But in, in essence, it's sort of like the analogy of a samizdat um, in the Soviet Union, of being able to share this information among a grassroots network. Um, so I'm going to open it up to, to questions. And um, I thank you for being here. I really appreciate all of you. Thank you. Hi, Michelle. Thank you so much for writing this book. Um, I'm a Honduran-born, proud, uh, unhyphenated American. Um, I've been living here for 28 years now and uh, have four children. And um, I can't thank you enough for what you've poured in that book in the sense that us legal immigrants recognize that you cannot have a country where everybody is trying to come through the back door. Um, 
I do have a, a couple of questions that are follow-ups um, for what you said. Um, I read somewhere that, um, I can't remember right now where, but uh, in, in Mexico helping, uh, offering to help the president stem the tide, um, I, I read that um, the Mexican authorities had frozen assets of two of the members of CAS, uh, not CAS, Pueblos Sin Fronteras. Uh, yeah, of yeah. Pueblos Sin Fronteras. Mm -hmm. um, is that true? And, and do you know of any, uh, any moves that have been done to immobilize them? Because they seem to be a big part of that spearhead. Yeah, uh, that's a really good question. As the book was going to press, Irenio Mujica, and who was the head of, of, well, they say there's no head, but he's the, the most public face of, yeah. He has, he has Chicago ties, and I'll, I'll, I talk about that in the book. Um, but as the book was going to press, he had been arrested along with one of his other allies. But then they turned around and released them and said that there was not enough evidence. But, but I, I guess what's assuring is that they are being monitored on both sides of the border. Um, the point that I've made about a lot of these uh, non-governmental organizations, these NGOs, is they really should be subject to criminal prosecution. Um, and there was um, another separate organization in Arizona called No More Deaths that actually did go to trial for aiding, abetting, and, and harboring illegal aliens that they had helped bus uh, across the border. I think there was a hung jury uh, in one case as I was going to press, and the prosecutors hadn't decided if, if they were going to go for a retrial. What I think is a model is what's going on in parts of, of Europe. Um, and in Hungary, there is an initiative to stop Soros, and they shut down one of his universities, and they're going after, in Italy, um, many of these organizations which are basically serving as you know, Sherpas across the sea. Um, I think that we should do the same thing. And I think just one powerful prosecution would be a, a, a very effective deterrent from other um, agents who are doing this. When the sanctuary movement in the Southwest arose, there were a couple of trials of some of the leaders. Jim Corbett was one of them. And they openly admitted that, that they were engaging, essentially, in, in human trafficking and laughed about it. And I think they, they basically got away with, with slaps on the wrist. But I wouldn't mind seeing criminal prosecutions of some of these church organizations, too. And you just mentioned Chicago, which, of course, I called out um, Elvira Ariano's church. Um, and Elvira Ariana has been able to basically go back and forth the, across the border at will and then head down there with Irenio Mujica and, um, and help out with the, with the caravans. These people are thumbing the nose at the law. And at some point, they're not the ones that you blame. You blame the federal government for not doing its own duty and putting these people in jail. So in chapter one, which is about what I call the caravan um, cartel, I talk about many of those religious organizations, and a large number of them are Catholic, that have worked with uh, uh, the UN High Commission on, on Refugees. Um, and a lot of those shelters, of course, are providing psychiatric care, food, and lodging. Um, and you know, there, there hasn't been a, we haven't been able to nail down um, exactly who paid for some of the buses there. But the fact is that there are maps that float out there on the internet. And I joke that it was some, somewhat like they should have TripAdvisor 
like to rate these shelters. Um, because, you know, they've got little like bed and breakfast signs all the way up um, Mexico, right up, up to the border. Um, and, you know, the, the open defiance of um, many of these sanctuary anarchists operating under the guise of, you know, Christian compassion um, really should uh, set a fire, I think, ordinary rank and file churchgoers uh, who have not written Romans out of the Bible. Hi, I'm Missy Foxman. I work in tech and I live in Montgomery County and I, I'm paranoid for a reason. Um, I wanted to ask you, going back to the journalist who clearly broke the law and stole someone's identity and is admitting this on air, has the statute of limitations expired? I mean, why isn't he arrested? Why isn't his, you know, whoever employs him being fined? I, you know, I feel like he might be a good public example of Sorry, you. I mean, it's probably a statute of limitations, but why yeah, is he it lauded may be instead that, of but, you know, arrested? The, but more recently, he did cross the border illegally as a test, right? And the American government failed the test. Basically, they've made sort of a, like a triage determination that apparently there are other, other more important things than making an example uh, out of this Soros mouthpiece and, and loud mouth. Um, it would have been, uh, uh, you know, a, a great way of... Um, of, of uh, providing a disincentive against ID theft, employment theft, tax fraud, um, all of it. But I mean, now this guy, Jose Antonio Vargas, who I've debated, by the way, and he's an, an amiable, affable enough guy. I mean, again, do you hold a criminal? It, do you, right, he is a criminal, but do you hold it against him or against the federal authorities in Oregon, in uh, Washington, D.C., in Philadelphia, where he used to work? All of them looked the other way. Now this guy advises Hollywood script writers to write in open borders, bleeding heart narratives that basically mirror his life story. And this guy goes around and says that he is as American or more American than me or you. So, thanks for speaking out too. Uh, hello, my name's Gordon. I'm a cybersecurity student also from Montgomery County. Um, uh, one of the big things, like, I mean, I am American. I, I've lived abroad a lot, hence the strange accent. But upon moving back here, I realized one of the biggest problems was, you know, there doesn't seem to be any real power for automatic deportation as soon as they cross the border. Whereas I've got family in, say, Australia, and if you try coming there, they just send you back. Yes. Do, you, do you think that it is even possible to get legislative authority to just send these people back and not clog up our court systems, our legal systems, our medical facilities? Etc. Etc. Much the same as if you came into an airport without a visa. Yes, you've identified one of the key problems, and the 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 the, the reality is that we don't need legislation. Um, the federal government has executive power to summarily exclude any single person it wants. We could have that automatic turning away tomorrow, today, if we wanted to, in an hour. Um, and uh, unfortunately, we don't have the will to do it, and um, the financial interests are such uh, that they override our national security concerns. This is a day where everybody is paying lip service to never forget and never again, and yet we have no idea if we are letting in through the southern border the next 19 to perpetrate an, uh, another September 11th or another September 12th. And there's an appendix that I think is very important in the book that outlines the dozens and dozens of 
organizations that make up what I call the illegal alien lawyers lobby. Because what we have down there at the border are immediate pro bono legal seminars advising all of the, these border uh, trespassers about their rights. Know your rights seminars. And I've talked about this the last couple of days in radio and TV interviews. I toured a, the ICE detention facility in Aurora, Colorado, and was stunned to see these beautifully new booths where illegal alien detainees can sit down and get access to free LexisNexis. Okay, if you're an independent journalist, if you're self-employed, you cannot afford a subscription to LexisNexis. It is prohibitively expensive. But not only do they get uh, LexisNexis access, they get it in Spanish. Um, there's a special room where they get legal consultants. And in so many ways, as I've talked about since invasion, illegal aliens have more standing in American courts than American citizens do, thanks to Open Borders, Inc. Thank you. Uh, since I haven't read the book yet, I'm, I don't know if you may have addressed this or not, but there seemed, I remember when I heard on the news Pope Benedict had just retired, which seemed very, I didn't know popes could retire. They, none had previously that I could remember. And then they, they um, brought in, and it seemed, since they were known to be a very conservative group selecting the new pope, I, or at least they had been in the past, I was really surprised that they had selected a, an open borders advocate and an extremely liberal pope relative to the previous ones. Um, I'm wondering if there was some manipulation involved with all of that. Yeah, it's a good question. And it's not something I address in the book, but I, I do um, document all of the public statements that Pope Francis has made since the election of President Trump. And the guilting of immigration enforcement Catholics um, by warping scripture and the Bible, I find especially uh, offensive and noxious. Um, I think that more grassroots Catholics have to find the courage to speak up about this because um, we can't enjoy religious liberty if we don't have a sovereign country. <laughs> yeah. yeah, hi, Michelle. What resources did you have to be able to dig into the facts? Yeah, a lot of, of open sources as well as, as sources that I've developed over the last 25 years. As I mentioned, I um, worked at newspapers on both the northern and southern border. Um, and uh, the, the reason that I was overly, overly, overly zealous about the footnoting is that I wanted people to know exactly um, every single source that I came from. So I erred on the side of being, well, it's, I guess it's the one area that I'm liberal on. <laughs> um, a, a lot of it is, is government documents, um, inspectors general reports, IRS documents uh, that are available, FOIA requests that I'd done, as well as original um, interviews that I'd done. <laughs> and a lot of them, emails back and forth, for example, with um, corporate open borders PR agencies that did their best to try and evade my questions, thinking that, uh, that it would be interpreted as these corporations not taking sides when not taking sides is taking a side. Um, so for example, I had, um, uh, a number of exchanges with a Microsoft 
PR person because I discovered that Microsoft was sponsoring a professorship at New York University that had housed a professor who used his position to dox ICE agents. In other words, to reveal personal information, large swaths of it, upload it onto the internet and have it crowd shared basically as a dog whistle for all of the SJW minions on Twitter and Facebook to go and target not only ICE employees, but their families. And so I asked um, the Microsoft uh, PR person, does Microsoft condone doxing and threatening the lives of federal employees? And the answer is, is in the, the um, introduction to the book. But the essence of it was, well, I, I asked my account executives and colleagues, and I'm sorry, but we really can't get back to you on that. So, um, if, you, if you can wean yourself off of Microsoft Word, <laughs> do it. Hi, on behalf of Montgomery County activists, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for agreeing to come to our rally Friday, 11 a.m. Hope the press will come, you. that you'll all come. There'll be an angel, uh, angel mom and an angel husband. Um, can you give us any advice beyond the kind of things we're doing? Apparently, we can't do like a recall petition. Mm -hmm. But even then, we are so thin in terms of this side of the political aisle in Montgomery County. There's not a, of the 38 um, elected officials at state and federal and local level, not a single one has been Republican for I don't know how long. And I, I know you used to live there. Yes. So um, just we're all trying to figure out next steps. This rally is going to be great, I hope. But And a lot of us do things like um, testify in Annapolis. But I, I think that one of these years, Maryland is going to become a sanctuary state, too. So I just, just looking for advice for the political activists on the ground beyond the things um, I uh, I haven't read your book yet, so I, I only know what you've said so far. You're doing all the right things, and I'm very excited to be able to attend the rally. I really think that this is a movement that is going to spread nationwide. So what you do is not just being watched in Washington, D.C., and the Beltway area in Montgomery County. You're setting an example um, for many other citizens in sanctuary cities and counties and, and states. And so turning out as many bodies as you can is incredibly important as a show of force. Um, and what you do to show up at the city council meetings and to call the county executive to the carpet um, and uh, you know, being able to uh, interact with the few good local journalists who are willing to cover the, the wages of open borders, the bloody consequences of it uh, is extremely important. I don't know what office there would be that you could be able to pick off, but I mean, you do have a Republican governor, and I think putting pressure on Republicans to understand like the vital nature of this issue. I, I've always hated it. It's always been an irritant over the years when people accuse me because I've made immigration such a, such a light motif of, of my work that I'm somehow a single issue writer. Immigration is every issue, and you see that in Montgomery County. It's infected the schools. 
you know, the, the illegal alien crime impact and the metastasis of MS-13. And we always talk about MS-13, but there are other illegal alien gangs out there. Uh, you know, there's a lot of competition. Um, the, the effect that it's having on young girls and women. Um, and, and so not only targeting elected officials, but other special interest groups that pay lip service to these issues. Where are the feminists? You know, I mean, eight, you've got eight now illegal alien um, rape suspects in custody after, I mean, the thing is that those are the only ones they were caught for. How many other ones that they're not being charged with are they responsible for? How many other besides the eight have gone through the revolving catch and release door? Um, so I would, you know, take those um, complaints and that sunlight, you know, straight to the local now chapter, you know, not just the Montgomery County uh, executive. Um, and then <laughs> the Baltimore Sun, what are you going to do? <laughs> I mean, um, you know, the, the liberal papers that do the bidding of, of Open Borders Inc., there are ways to expose the money connections there too. And I would start researching, you know, the campaign contributions of some of the executives and the links between some of those journalists at Open Borders Inc. There was a very important researcher that I highlighted in the book named Owen Lenahan, who had done a study where he was able to show the connections between Antifa and alleged mainstream media journalists. Um, and those journalists, when they are essentially political operatives, needed, need to be outed as well. So, you know, do your own Open Borders Inc. Um, investigations in, into them as well. Um, you know, we don't have a, a um, you know, political systems like in Europe where you could have third and fourth and fifth parties that are that are viable. Um, but in the meantime, I think if, if uh, you know, there's more of an, an, an internal revolt within the establishment Republican Party on these matters, and of course these are cleavages that have been highlighted by going all the way back to Phyllis Schlafly's um, A Choice, Not an Echo. Um, these, these are battles that have, that, that have been taking place for decades, you know, if not a century. Um, but, 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 you know, ultimately I would say just don't give up. Keep doing what you're doing. Hi, my name is Eleni Dorian. I'm also from Montgomery County, and I can't wait to read your book. Uh, and I just want to say, Amy... Several other people here have done great work in Montgomery County. We go to battle. Uh, I'm just a mom, just a mom, just a <laughs> citizen. Um, but I would encourage everyone here, wherever your state is, if this is important to you, get involved locally, sign a bill, call your congressman, whatever. There's things to be done. But I have two things that are coming to mind. Mm -hmm. One, I keep thinking about all the cops out there that are looking the other way, and I guess they're afraid of losing their jobs. But wouldn't it be great, I, I want to know your take on this, that we could have, I guess, coming down from the president, hey, you'll be protected, come forth, because someone needs to fight back against these sanctuary sheriffs and sanctuary police chiefs, which we very much have in Montgomery County and beyond, uh, to stop this. Uh, I actually bumped into a sheriff, I was at a Greek festival, I'm Greek background, and I just kind of went up to him and I said, so what do you think about this latest... Uh, uh, you know, law in Montgomery County. And he was a little quiet, and I said, really, it's too bad that, you know, people that are here illegally and go on to commit horrific crimes cannot be turned over. And he said, well, 
He paused. He said, that's a federal law. We follow county law. And I prodded him a bit, you know, a bit further, and his response was, well, what can we do? And I said, I believe some of these cops are coming forward now, and that's why we're hearing about these rapes, because this stuff has been going on for a long time. Mm. And he said, yeah, but they're really afraid, yeah. and they can lose their jobs. So I'd like to, how can we, you know, have you seen in any of your research as you've gone, you know, across east to west, more cops that will do this? And... Um, I'd also like to see some of these nonprofits losing their nonprofit status. Yes. We go to testify, and there are dozens and dozens of groups. The NAACP, the, the clinic, the Catholic Legal, the Lutheran yes. this, Jews for Justice. Uh, it just goes on and on, and they are well-funded. They're there, and, and all, the groups that are putting the truth out, like Center for Immigration Studies, FAIR, and others are, you know— I don't want to say hesitant, but they're limited. They're cautious to sort of be front and center to lose their nonprofit status. So I wonder why the feds, again, aren't doing more in that direction. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, you know, thank you. So here, yes. Thank you for your question. And thank you for your activism. Um, here we are in the heart of Capitol Hill. And it um, raises the question of why, when Republicans were in power, they didn't do more to extend, for example, the investigation into ACORN, right? ACORN got defunded, it, they went underground, and then they just morphed into something else. But in the meantime, all of these great groups that you mentioned that have been spotlighting it, there's Capital Research Center, Center for Immigration Studies, um, a number of independent researchers who've uh, talked about the blatantly political and partisan nature of these nonprofits. Well, when we had um, you know, Republicans in power who could have done investigations into these things, they didn't do it. And then they lost the House. So, I mean, what are they doing? This is on them. So, you know... <laughs> Stop complaining about the mass, amassing of power of these groups when you could have stopped it when you were holding the gavel. Um, so I, I think that means that we, too, have to be much more discriminating about how, who we put in, into office in the first place. Because what happens is, and this is why I'm a refugee from the Beltway Swamp, is they come here, they grow moss on their backs, and they forget why they were sent here in the first place. Um, so these are many of the forces that um, President Trump and the enforcement wing of the West Wing face. And unfortunately, um, there are some of, of, of the um, forces that oppose us that are inside the West Wing. And I always talk about fragging inside the tent, and that's going on too. It's not just that the president has to battle the, uh, the Jim Acostas of the world, because there are some people who have the same worldview who are nearby him and around him. Um, and I think as long as there are activists like yourself and as long as the angel families are as vocal and as visible as they can be, and remember that they don't have a voice on CNN prime time, they're not going to be treated sympathetically on the Today Show. Um, but to the extent that we can amplify those voices and keep focused on their stories and do everything that we can, can to resist this dehumanizing impulse on the part of the mainstream media, Hollywood, and academia, um, you know, we're fortifying uh, you know, our, our own side in that way. Yeah. Hi, Michelle. Uh, Brad Botwin, Help Save Maryland. I salute you, Brad. Great to meet you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, a, a couple of things. So I'd like to... Um, also looking forward to uh, the book and uh, being with you on Friday. 
Um, did you cover uh, one of my favorite groups, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society? Yes, they are listed, oh, of course. Don't call them that anymore. No, well, they have they morphed to? H-I-A-S, we ran, I'm Jewish, we ran out of Hebrews, so we <laughs> had to bring in other people. <laughs> so the business continues from, I, I, you know, I think my grandparents, great-grandparents in New York probably you know, worked with these, sure. these group when they came over. Sure. But um, they're on the forefront for refugees and other things. So uh, I'm looking forward to, uh, to reading that. They, they're constantly crying that there's not enough refugees to bring in. Yes. Do something else. Find something else. <laughs> um, and then you mentioned the law firms. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I guess it was about two years ago we had this... Uh, rape. It's not really a rape because she was only 14 and it was consensual, but we had this rape in the bathroom in At the high school. high school. Yeah. Out of nowhere, this high-powered law firm came and represented the two uh, gentlemen mm-hmm. who, who did the deed in the, in the boys' room, and they got off, and no one knows what happened to them. They just poof, disappeared. They were 18 years old. They shouldn't have been in the they high school They looked 30 from with. their photographs. Well, that, that often yeah, they happens, were older. Right? They were older. Right. So, I mean, we just don't, where did the funding come from? Why did they step up to defend these guys? Uh, it, it really is just, uh, you know, very disheartening. And again, as a parent, what is going on? Why are we defending people like that? and letting them out on the streets again. And there's lots more that we did not hear about. There, there are plenty of cases. The police have told me they have downgraded. When it gets to the court system, they downgrade it. If it's less than a year, then they don't have to talk to ICE. Yes. So it becomes 363 days. Right. So there, yeah. there's a, an intersection here between sort of domestic, sort of run-of-the-mill left-wing ideas, for example, restorative justice. Right, and that has been foisted upon all of the government schools. In part, it's what enabled the Parkland shooter. The idea that the the worst of the lemons that are in the public school system uh, should avoid the criminal justice system for an alternate uh, system that basically allows them to um, operate under the radar screen until they end up in your school shooting um, and killing um, multiple numbers of, of innocent children. So you have that already pre-existing in the government school system, and you, then you marry it to, as, as you say, and as I've identified, the illegal alien lawyers lobby, and you end up with this nightmare of um, you know, the worst of the worst of, of uh, MS-13 gangsters who pose as youth, I mean, whoever is able to verify what the actual ages of them, them, them are, and they come in, and they, like I said, they look like in their, they're in their 30s, you know, getting, you know, a free ride. I mean, they're not getting an education. I don't know what they're doing, but they're doing something in the bathroom and then getting off scot-free. Yeah, it, it's horrific. I'm, I'm so glad that I had made that decision um, to move away from, from Montgomery County. Um, but the fact is, and I've talked about this, there is no safe space because the same thing is happening in in Colorado now. And you know, I used to. It's always easy to blame California. Oh, this is the Californication of of, of Colorado, but it's really not because it's coming from everywhere. Yeah. Um, I believe that after financial, one of the major roadblocks that's keeping things from getting done on this is definitely public dissonance caused mostly by the media bias. So how, what would you suggest to rectify that largely liberal skewed, you know, media bias that we have going on? 
Well, um, I think it's one of the primary reasons that I expanded from being a newspaper and print person to jumping into the internet world in the first place. And there was um, somewhat of an early adopter reward for that early generation of conservative bloggers who were able to do a lot of this investigative reporting and make a difference. And then, of course, Silicon Valley realized they have too much power, and that's why you've seen all of these deplatformings. Um, but to the extent that those of us who are still sort of, even if we're shadow banned like I am um, on these platforms, um, still can amplify other people's voices. And like I said, there is strength in numbers. But in the meantime, I think what we really need to do is plan for the future and think about a post-Facebook, post-Twitter world. Even if that means going back to, I don't know, print newsletters and postcards, you know, it's funny because free market um, uh, conservatives have always said that we need to just privatize the post office. Actually, maybe we might want to rethink that because it's one of the few places that I'm still able to communicate without a concern of a ban hammer. Um, but, but who knows? I mean, there's, there's no sanctuary space in, in that regard. But I think we have to dial back even further. And one of the most important things I did was talk about even before you have say, college age or older news consumers, what's happening is a brainwashing in the public schools. It all goes back to the public schools. And I, I analyze some of the teaching tolerance curriculum that, that has proliferated um, from the Southern Poverty Law Center. Each one of those textbooks should come with uh, some sort of warning label uh, that talks about the lawsuits, that talks about the defamation settlements, um, that talks about the smear campaign, uh, and that talks about the internal whistleblowers within the SPLC that have accused the founder, Morris Dees, of racial discrimination and sexual harassment. Like, shouldn't parents know that <laughs> that that uh, that organization is now um, teaching their kids to obliterate the difference between um, legal and illegal immigrants, uh, the guilting, the the dreamer propaganda that passes as academic curriculum. Um, there are tens of thousands of teachers who are certified through the Teaching Tolerance Program, and uh, they, they exploit things like the September 11th terrorist attacks. And their lesson from it is not that we should have greater immigration enforcement, but that we should open the floodgates. Um, you know, when you start with that, by the time uh, these kids are watching CNN or, or, wash, or, or what, reading the Washington Post, they have absolutely no filter unless they have vigilant parents who are helping them you know, build their own BS detectors. <laughs>